0: On the road to Jerusalem, Jesus taught his disciples that to be a disciple, they must follow him. And it was going to be costly, but they are to follow him no matter the cost. To be a disciple is for Jesus to be our Lord. The one that we look to, the one that we will follow now. And this whole section of Mark's gospel that we have been going through From chapter 8, verse 27, and continuing all the way to roughly chapter 10, verse 45, everybody debates about where to break up different sections, right? Because they didn't have paragraph or section headings. But thereabouts, chapters 8 and through 10, Jesus is continuing to teach his disciples, teach them what it is to follow Him in different areas and as it touches on different aspects of of their lives and, and our lives as well. We might call these lessons Discipleship 101. When the three of the disciples saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, it was a testimony of the glory of Christ and it was a lesson for them to heed Him. When the disciples cannot heal the little boy and they show their their lack of faith, uh, this becomes an occasion for them to learn not to limit their Lord and God and not to rely on themselves, but then to turn to the Lord in prayer. Faith that that prays, that trusts in God. When the disciples argued about who is the greatest, Jesus taught the greatness in the sight of God is to serve in the lowest place. Today we come to another lesson in discipleship. This time, when John tells Jesus they tried to stop a man who was helping others in Jesus' name. And Jesus teaches his disciples that the right response with such people is not quickness to judge, but to watch them for their, their fruit. And as we do so, to keep ourselves from temptation. This occasion becomes a lesson in doing whatever it takes to remain pure and at peace. Turn with me for today's scripture reading to Matthew chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 38 to 50 of Mark chapter 9. Did I say Matthew? I probably did. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone was hung about his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. May God bless the reading of his word this morning and teach us today. So we have in verse 38 a, a situation that John tells Jesus about. And and John not only tells him about it, but he, he shares what they did about it, their response, and the reasoning for what they did. And Jesus' response in verses 39 to 40 parallels John's wording here. He corrects the disciples response to this man. The situation is fairly straightforward. There was a man who was not one of the disciples and he was casting out demons in Jesus name. Appears that he was successful in doing so. When Jesus responds, the wording he uses in verse 39 is one who does a mighty work in my name. So he broadens the category here. To cast out a demon is to do a mighty work in his name. What did the disciples do? The disciples response in verse 38 is we tried to stop him. But Jesus says in verse 39, Do not stop him. Well, the disciples reason was that this man was not following us. He wasn't a part of our group. He didn't get approved. Or at least not yet. But what Jesus teaches us is that he will not easily be able to speak evil of me one verse 39 who does a mighty work in my name will not soon afterward be able to speak evil of me so we have this man that knew enough about Jesus to recognize Jesus authority over the power of demons And to trust that Jesus' power was sufficient to do that. Yet he wasn't one of the disciples. This bothered the disciples. Bothers us very often when we see somebody outside the group doing something good in the name of Jesus. Our tendency when someone isn't a part of our kind of categories for a disciple is to sort of write them off, tell them to stop. But the principle that Jesus gives is different. He says that when someone acts in his name, they cannot soon act in a way that is against him. I think it's important that we realize that Jesus doesn't make a pronouncement here. This man is my disciple. Now include him. Today, he doesn't shout from heaven telling us who is in and who is out. What Jesus gives us is a principle for evaluating the people around us. People that do good. In Christ's name. That don't belong to our. Perhaps our fellowship. What he teaches is that we should not be quick. To stop those who do good in his name. Why? Why does he say something like that? Why couldn't he just tell us who's in and who's out and make it very clear. Well, the reason he's saying so is because you can't be on both sides at once. You're either going to be with Christ or you're going to be for him. A person can pretend for a while. A person can slip back and forth, look the part, Of a disciple. But no one can serve. Two masters. In Luke chapter 11 verse 23. Jesus says whoever is not with me. Is against me. And whoever does not gather with me. Scatters. With God there isn't any neutral ground. And on the surface, that probably sounds like it contradicts what we just read in Mark's gospel. Doesn't it? In Luke 11, whoever is not with me is against me. In Mark 9, 40, the one who is not against us is for us. But does it contradict no, it doesn't. This is where context is very important. People can pull out a verse and say, see, look at that. But in Luke 11, we find that Jesus is addressing his enemies. They've come at him with accusations. And he makes it clear that they are not standing with him. In Mark 9 and in the parallel account in Luke 9, this man was not standing against Jesus, was he? He was acting with a measure of faith in Jesus by casting out a demon, demons plural, in his name. And hence we have this command, do not stop him. Because at that moment, at any rate, he is not acting opposed to Christ. When someone does something that is good in the name of Jesus. We should not see that as opposed to Christ. We should not be quick to write such a person off. Perhaps there are other red flags or questions we have. Somebody uh, gives a story of the miraculous and we don't know them. How do I know? If that is truly the case or not, there are many situations that we cannot speak to because we are not a part of those situations. What, what is our gut reaction? Somebody that's not a part of our group does something that is God-honoring. See, here's the thing. If that person doesn't truly trust Jesus, they will soon show their true colors. Okay? Then it's a different story. Then the story goes like Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So this is a serious matter. How we treat those on the outside. How we discern those that are following Christ and those that are not. It calls for a lot of patience, firstly, and wisdom, secondly. The way that Paul put it when he was talking about the proper way to bring a charge against an elder in the church, he said this. He said in 1 Timothy 5, 24-25, the sins of some people are conspicuous they're clear they're obvious they're right in your face and they go before them to judgment but the sins of others appear later so also good works are conspicuous they're clear they're they're obvious a person can see it in the fruit of a person's life and even those that are not cannot remain hidden Eventually, all will be exposed and justice will be done. But until then, until then, there's a right place to divide when Christ is clearly being opposed. Someone is standing against him or trying to be neutral, trying to sit on the fence, not make a commitment one way or the other. But we should not be quick to rebuke someone when they're doing a work, a good work, in Jesus' name, a work that demonstrates a measure of faith in Jesus. Like the disciples in Jesus' day, We need to watch that we don't evaluate someone on the basis that they they aren't a part of our group. How then do we judge people? Because it's not a matter of judging or not, it's a matter of judging rightly. In the right way, in the right context. Well, Jesus gives us principles for evaluating people in verses 41 to 42. Very clear way of of looking at others. He speaks of two opposite kinds of actions that deserve two opposite rewards. We have the one who gives a cup of water to someone who belongs to Jesus They will be blessed for it. Jesus says, verse 41, For truly I say to you, whoever, doesn't matter who it is, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. It is a blessed thing. It is a good thing to care for Christ's people, his children. And then we have the one who leads one of Christ's little children astray. One who leads Christ's disciple onto the path of sin. And they are cursed with a terrible curse. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him if a great millstone was hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea now ultimately it's god who does the blessing and it is god who does the cursing but we are called to exercise discernment to to see those that do something like as simple as and giving a cup of water to somebody, giving a cup of water to a Christian brother or sister, or giving a blanket, that something like that is blessed, that God sees that. We're also called to be able to recognize when someone is leading Christ's people astray, they're not. They're not one of his people and they'll be judged for it. So if you want to know someone, watch how they treat God's people. Watch for the fruit of their life. By this you'll learn to discern between those that are genuinely on the side of Christ, And those that are creeping as wolves among sheep to devour the people of God. It's another reason we should not be quick to judge because someone can be looking pretty good. Doing a lot of nice things. But in the end, leading people away from the Lord. So we should watch out for those who cause a believer in Christ to stumble and sin and be able to to help one another to to not fall into those traps. But we also must watch ourselves lest we fall into the trap of sin. And this is where Jesus turns in verse 43 i I'm going to read to the end of verse 50 there, the end of the chapter. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two feet, two hands rather, to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, is a good thing, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus' teaching here on temptation flows out of his warning against those that tempt, would tempt his children. OK, we were given that warning in verse 40, 42, that whoever would cause a little one to sin, it would be better for him. Well, he continues and he, he addresses all of his disciples here. And if your hand. Your foot, your eye. All of these. Uh, cutting off. Pulling out your eye speaks to doing whatever it takes to deal with temptations. And dealing with the dealing with the root of it. Right? Now we know from the scriptures that Jesus is not saying here if you if you gouge out your eye, well, your lust problem will be taken away. If you cut off your hand, you're not going to be grasping for things that aren't yours, you know. If you cut your feet off, you'll be stuck at home and you won't get into trouble. It's our heart. But do we do whatever it takes to get rid of the sinful desires of our hearts and to replace them with good things? This is what Jesus calls us to do, to cut off whatever causes us to sin. And that may mean taking away something external to deal with something. If you got a problem eating too many cookies, maybe don't keep them in the house. I don't know. Whatever the issue is, right? With kids, that works great. Keep it out of sight. They forget about it, at least for a while. But why do we do this? What is the motivation Jesus gives? It's not a motivation we like to think about. But it is the fires of hell, it is that sin's punishment is so great. And Jesus doesn't shy away from that. What would be better, to deal with our temptations, our sin, to stay away from sin, or to go our merry way on the road to destruction? The word hell here, the Hebrew word Gehenna, is described in verse 43 as the unquenchable fire. And then in verse 48, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah, who spoke of a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's Isaiah 66, verse 24, the very last chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. It's a terrible fate described with these words. I did want to take a moment because there are many people today that wish to redefine the word Gehenna, that wish to redefine what hell is to make it a less terrible place. Say that it just has nothing to do with eternal torment. They'll say maybe the fires go on forever, but the punishment can't. That would just be cruel, right? Well, the plain truth is that Jewish literature from the time of Jesus very often associates Gehenna with eternal fiery torment. Give you a list of sources if you wanted to look. Up what they said. We also know from rabbinic literature that Isaiah 66 and the passages like it, they were understood to refer to an eternal punishment. For example, in the extra biblical book of Judith, we read, Woe to the nations that rise up against my people. The Lord Almighty will take vengeance upon them in the day of judgment. He will give their flesh to fire and worms, and they shall weep in pain forever. I really believe that if Jesus was to mean something different than eternal torment, He would have had to explain himself. Because to the first century Jew, that's exactly what the words Jesus spoke would have conveyed. A place of eternal torment. A terrible place that no one should want to be. The point of all of this, of Jesus' teaching here, of course, is that it is better to lose a limb than to lose one's soul and to suffer in, in a place such as this. Do we take sin as seriously as Jesus taught us to? Do we take the punishment for sin seriously? I think it would certainly affect how extreme we're willing to go to deal with our temptations. How fleeting and foolish these temporary pleasures would seem in light of of not only sin's punishment, but the glories of heaven. It was good for us to consider how we'll go about intentionally guarding ourselves. Do we have a plan? Do we have uh, people around us to help us when we're facing temptations? Do we, are we able to keep ourselves from those that do tempt us? they are important things to consider. Well, Jesus concludes with a couple of sayings about salt. Salt has many benefits as seasoning, as fertilizer, as preservative, and uh, in fact, Jesus says salt is good. The first thing that he says is that everyone will be salted with fire. Well, that's directly related to what's gone on, what he said before about uh, punishment. And hell, fires of hell, seems to refer simply to the fact that all people will be judged and punished accordingly. Nobody can say, well, I don't really want to be judged, so I'm going to get out. Everyone will be salted with fire. But the second saying he says is... uh, Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. So he talks about having this quality of saltiness that it is a positive picture that portrays the, the blessing, the goodness of purity and peace with one another. Question to ask is Do we have that salt? Okay, let's recap really quickly here. When we see someone doing good in Jesus' name, we should not be quick to cast them out to say they're not a disciple. But instead, we're to watch to see the fruit of people's lives. Whether they give the least of Christ's people A gift, even the smallest thing? Or are they someone who is leading the disciples away? And as we as we do that, as we consider how others treat the body of Christ we must watch ourselves that we don't allow the poison of temptation to spread in us. Our Lord warns us of the dangers, and it's only our Lord who can rescue us. The Apostle Paul wrote. Who can deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ who can deliver us. And it's knowing the mercy of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's believing that he is Lord that we are enabled more and more to be a person of purity and of peace. One who waits before casting judgment. One who considers how people treat the body of Christ. And above all, one that watches our own soul.